Little Wing is now streaming on Paramount Plus. I'm in a period of emotional upheaval. Is that all the oh, I don't care crap? A little adventure. Where are you going? I'm gonna steal a bird from the Russian pigeon mafia. Let's do it. Goes a long way. <laughs> Starring Brooklyn Prince with Kelly Riley and Brian Cox. Life can hurt, but life is sweet. Little Wing, rated PG-13, may be inappropriate for children under 13. Now streaming exclusively on Paramount+. Plus. This episode is brought to you by Paramount+. Plus. Get in, loser! Mean Girls is now streaming on Paramount+. Plus. Join Katie Heron as she meets the plastics and Tina Fey's new twist on the modern classic. Get ready for more of the rumors, backstabbing, and jokes you loved from the original movie with some fetch surprises. Rated PG-13. Wear pink and head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. This is Real Love, a Valentine's special from Death, Sex, and Money. And she inexplicably mails me a cactus every Valentine's Day. The show from WNYC about the things we think about a lot. It doesn't matter whose fault the breakup was, okay? And need to talk about more. Oh, I love her too much. I'm Anna Sale. And on this Valentine's Day, we're going to get real. I like having love in my life. I don't seem to have been so successful at it, having had three husbands. Since I started this show, I've talked with lots of people, some famous, some not, about their lives. Love always seems to find a way into the conversation. Being with her is the greatest joy of my life. I was incredibly heartbroken at the time. I get jealous, but I don't tell her that. So this Valentine's Day, let's celebrate with some real love stories. The kind of love, like Mary J famously said, that's worth searching for and working for. I went to a couples therapist. I realized part of the problem was mine. In the next hour, you'll hear from Jane Fonda, who told me she gave up on marriage. I went seven years celibate, and I thought that was it. Now in her 70s, she lives with her boyfriend, but still says marriage is not for her. Later on, sex columnist Dan Savage talks about what he and his husband argue about most. The answer might surprise you. Country musicians Jason Isbell and Amanda Shires talk about falling in love and confronting his alcoholism. It's hard to trust somebody who's out carousing every night, you know. And I'm still figuring this out, too. This hour, you'll hear how I got help with my fear of commitment from a retired U.S. senator and his wife. I saw them, there were some wounds there. What'd you see? Well, you were a little, you know, a little standoffish. Before we jump in, I want to remind everyone that our show is called Death, Sex, and Money. So if you're a parent with kids listening, heads up that sex does come up. I want to start with something that's often not part of the conversation around Valentine's Day. What it's like being on your own. James McBride is the award-winning author of books like The Color of Water and The Good Lord Bird. He and his wife divorced in 2013. I asked him if he was interested in getting married again. Hmm. I don't know about that, you know. I'm, I mean, I'm not really that successful at dating, you know. I haven't really had that much luck at it. I'm 56 years old. I don't really, you know. What do I, I don't have anything to say to anyone who's under, you know, 50, 45, whatever. I mean, at, at best, you know. Um, I don't know. I don't think so. At this point, the answer is no. Because I was married for 19 years, you know, and I thought it was a good marriage. Um, I, couldn't, I, I couldn't go through that kind of pain again. The divorce was... Yeah. The voice is painful. And I'm not, you know, busting on my ex-wife. She's a nice person, very fine woman, you know, and I hope she finds a good spouse for herself. But I don't know if I could do that again. It's just too hard, you know. And then there's the whole business of, like, I just stick with my old friends. I have, you know, several of them. And I'm happy that, you know, when you're young, all you want to do is get laid. When you get older, you know. Good eight hours of sleep, you know, that work. That's all right, you know. You, it's possible. You adjust, you know what I mean? <laughs> so you, you, you know, you learn what's important. Love's important. Companionship's important. Sex is good to have. But 
If your heart's not full, then, you know, sex is like drinking beer. That first one's good. By the ninth one, you know, you're poisoning yourself. And um, look, when you go, when you walk down the street in New York, there are millions of people here, and millions of them are just lonely. And they look like they're happy. It's like going to a disco and people are dancing and they're just, they're all dancing lonely. To, they're all being lonely together. The fullness of being of, of one's humanity, I think, comes from within. And you say, I mean, not, it's not about enjoying the moment because that's like one of those, you know, phrases that you hear with, in those yoga classes where people hang upside down and they pay somebody 50 bucks to do it. I can hang upside down at home and it's free, you know. <laughs> but at my age, I... Not that I'm an old man. I mean, I'm, you know, I'm a young guy still. I mean, I'm told I look very young for my age and so forth. It's really about saying to yourself, I know that it's hard, but everything is possible. But I, I can't remember a time I've been happier. That's James McBride, National Book Award-winning author and musician. That's him playing the piano. I know what he's talking about, how exhilarating it is to realize you're happy again after going through heartbreak. It's one of the reasons I started this show. I'd had some ups and downs in my love life, and I wanted to hear how other people had gotten through hard moments. And then this happened. Ms. Anna Sales, this is Alan K. Simpson in the wilds of Wyoming, former U.S. Senator. Need to talk to you about an urgent matter. Nothing life-threatening at all. I called him back. Alan Simpson, the former Republican senator, the Simpson from the Simpson Bowl's plan to tackle the national debt, was calling me to talk about my love life. He told me he'd gotten a letter from Arthur the boyfriend I'd just broken up with. Dear Senator Simpson, we met once briefly a few years ago. Here goes. The love of my life, Miss Anna Sale, lives in New York City. We had been long distance. Arthur was in Wyoming. I was in New York. And in my early 30s and already divorced. And I was afraid of wasting time. Our breakup was mutual. And then Arthur changed his mind. We weren't really talking, though. Neither of us knew Al Simpson, but I was a political reporter at the time, and Arthur thought getting a call from the former senator would make me laugh. But first, Arthur had to explain what had gone wrong. And so a month ago, Anna stopped believing I would ever close the distance to be with her, and she cut me loose. I don't blame her. I was being a fool, and I took her for granted. But now I see, eyes wide open, my mistake. So the letter worked. Al Simpson called me. I called him back. And that started a conversation about love, commitment, and how hard parts are inevitable. Al Simpson left the Senate in 1997. Now he spends most of his time in Cody, Wyoming. I went out there to talk with him and his wife, Anne. They've been married for more than 60 years. I wanted to know what made it last. We're all ready to have lunch. Oh. Well, you gotta eat something. You know, we had the good fortune of getting some outside help when we needed it through our church. Uh, we were had been married probably 10 years at that time, mm-hmm. and uh, it was not a good time for us. Three children, busy life, and just a feeling that I needed help. Our minister... The guy that married us. He came to see us, to call on us. And I said, how, what a great life I had as I burst into tears. And he told us... Al knew the minister was organizing counseling for couples at church, and he wanted no part of it. And I saw the car drive up. I said, I'm not going to come out to hell with it. I'm not going to do it. And said, well, I've done a lot of junk for you, pal, so you can do one for me. And that that was really a, a, a true statement. I mean, gone to rallies and pie rallies and... You know, fish fries and all the stuff that goes with this game. And so uh, I went. And I had things in my past that bothered me, and I was able to talk about that. I'd had an experience of being molested. Hmm. And uh, 
it, it was just something that I was always aware of. And once I was able to talk about it, it diminished. She said, like, I've never told you anything. I guess we'd been married 20 years. Oh, I said, well. Not that long. 15, yeah, whatever. It and was my secret. No, anyway, I said, well, at least turn on the light. And she did, and she told me this. I said, you think I care about that? That doesn't mean crap to me. Nothing. She said, you mean that? I said, yeah. What the hell does that have to do with us? Well, she said, I just never wanted to tell you. I said, well, you can sure scratch it off because it, it had nothing to do with my feelings toward you or, or anything. Well, it was a gift. It must have made you feel so safe. It did. I felt safe. That's exactly right. The hardest thing for all couples to talk about is sex. And it's hard to believe, but it is. And the big issues in all marriages that hang it up is your sexual relationship. Whoever is the most aggressive, the other one is in control. You know, we're older, so it isn't the issue now that it was when we were young, but it was a big issue, and it is in all marriages. Well, then when you talk about it, you're, you think, uh, well, there's a couple of horny people and want to... No, that's not the point. It's called intimacy. Scratch my back, give me a hug, just a hug. I said, okay. <laughs> you know, I've had a lot. But... Just a touch, you know, a whack on the fanny in the kitchen, you know, or whatever, whatever. I don't know. I'm not telling you those things make me look like a, a, a fine, wonderful. I can be a real horse's ass. I'm stubborn. I'm a bully. I'm a bully. I can get into a relationship. Anne won't let me pull it off, but, you know, I can... It has made me stronger uh, being married to a bully. Were there ever moments for either of you where you thought maybe this, maybe there's not a way back towards each other? Well, I think it isn't that. It's just that you think maybe somebody else could replace you. Mm-hmm. I guess there were times that I, th- you know, you think that divorce maybe is the answer to start someplace else, but you don't get rid of it. And uh, everyone I've ever seen that divorced that went into another marriage had learned that it was the same thing and they better make it work. So this is this might be too personal, but it has, has talking about and kind of reaffirming fidelity and monogamy been part of your marriage as you've sort of worked through different phases? Well, I, I don't know that we dealt with that so much because we both went into it believing in monogamy. You know, we're from the era, and our parents, Mm -hmm. you know, divorce had never been a part of any of our lives, and uh, it's a different world now. But, you know, I think about it, I I have a big problem with washing my hair. My hair will be just right, you can relate to this, and I think, maybe I should wash my hair. Well, maybe I'd wait another day, and then, you know, so... I'm in there washing my hair, still trying to decide whether to wash my hair. And that's how I was in the beginning about marriage. I'm married. I'm trying to decide if I want to be married. Well, I am married. And that's what most people are doing. They're in it, and they haven't committed. And it's easy to do. Oh, yeah. That's really easy to do. I... um I don't think you all know this, but before Arthur and I got together, I was married and divorced. No, I didn't know that. How long were you married? I was married three and a half years with my boyfriend throughout my 20s. And then we divorced. We divorced, and I met Arthur just a few months after. So hmm. Arthur was going to be my my cowboy fling. <laughs> and here you are. And here I am. I think the real key is you decide to make it work. There are lots of different ways. We had ways. Other people have different ways. But you have to take risks. 
of what he did. He took a big risk. Arthur did take a risk. Confessing his heartache to a retired U.S. senator, it's what got us back together. Not because I got a phone call from a famous person, but because it showed me the kind of man Arthur is. I didn't want to lose him. We got married last summer. You can hear my full conversation with Al and Ann Simpson at deathsexmoney.org. Coming up, we move from a retired senator to a sex columnist. When an opposite sex couple, a boy and a girl, they get to consent. They get to, yes, we are going to have sex, and they stop talking. When two dudes get to yes, it's the beginning of the negotiation. This is Real Love, a radio special from WNYC's Death, Sex, and Money. I'm Anna Sale. This is Real Love, a Valentine's special from WNYC's Death, Sex, and Money. I'm Anna Sale. Dan Savage and his husband Terry have been together for about 20 years and married for the past decade. Their son DJ is a teenager. When he was younger, Terry was the parent in charge. Terry was the stay-at-home dad, and, you know, what he said, go. Whatever Terry says, goes. Like, Terry made the rules. Um, and he didn't have to win arguments with DJ. Like, Terry was the boss, and that's a role Terry is most comfortable with, being the boss. Dan gives sex advice for a living. In his column for The Stranger and on his podcast, Savage Lovecast, the most important thing, he says over and over, is to learn how to talk about what you want in your sex life. Gay people, we do know more about sex. We have more sex. We're better at it because we have to communicate with each other in a way that straight people don't. So sex is not an issue for Dan and Terry. The thing they have trouble talking about? Money is our biggest fault line in our relationship. We still fight about money. We fight about money constantly because uh, Terry uh, enjoys spending money and I do not enjoy seeing money spent. <laughs> and Terry is a collector. Uh, Terry has a massive um, record collection that's always growing. And I look at it and think, what am, you know, if I outlive you, what am I going to do with all of these records? Um, and when is enough? Like you have more records than you could listen to in 10 years. If you sat in the living room on the floor just playing your vinyl, it would take you 10 years to listen to every single one of them. And you're not going to do that. And I don't, I don't have that gene. I don't understand that desire to possess a thing that has no real use or meaning. But, you know, I, I own three pairs of shoes and Terry owns 50 pairs of shoes. Uh, and we're just different people that way. Uh, and different in that I have also paid for every single pair of shoes in our house, but I only can wear three of them. And so, the, you know, if Terry hears this, he can be really mad. He doesn't like me to talk about it. Well, I wanna... we fight, this is what we fight. We don't fight about sex. We don't, you know, he could have an affair. And that would not be a problem for me, but we will fight when I'm home for a week and every day that I'm home, a UPS truck comes by with a package <laughs> with shoes or clothes or records in it, which happens. And we have massive, huge arguments about that. So from what I understand from this interview is that Terry is a bossy taskmaster who shouldn't go on eBay. So this is how you described <laughs> your husband. Oh, I, I wish you would go on eBay because at least that's an auction. <laughs> you, might get a, you might get a bargain on eBay. He goes on Amazon. He goes on Guilt. He goes on, you know, Nordstrom. He, he, Terry is not on eBay looking for bargains. <laughs> Terry doesn't have the time. There's too much shopping to do. That's Dan Savage. And obviously, Dan's not the only one out there who struggled with money in relationships. A few months back, I asked listeners to call in and share their stories about what happens when romance and finance collide. When the idea of a prenup came, it just our relationship just fell apart. The two of them fought a lot about money when my sister and I were growing up. We keep a running tally. I earn more than him. 
I'm just not practical in my spending the way my husband is. I thought about us getting married and never wanting to share a bank account with him. The advice of my mother and my mother's mother was always that a woman should keep her own bank account in their relationship. When we spoke, Jane Fonda told me how she felt the ways that money and marriage are entangled after she left billionaire Ted Turner. I moved into my daughter's house in Atlanta. I was all by myself, which after Ted, the silence was deafening. And I remember standing in the middle of this little bedroom. It didn't even have a closet. And, um, you know, I'd, I'd been, I'd been living in 23 kingdom sized estates and flying in private jets. And now I'm, I had a rented car and a room with no closet. And I stood in the middle of the room in tremendous pain with sadness that the marriage hadn't worked. And yet there was also this voice that said, I'm okay. It took her a long time to get to that place. Ted Turner was Jane Fonda's third husband. After her second divorce, she told me she'd had a breakdown. Yes, I I didn't even realize it at the time. It was only looking back on it that I, well, I guess I did. I, um... It wasn't even that it was that good a, a marriage, but, you know, sometimes a, a divorce or a crisis can pull the scab off a very, very, very early wound, and that's what this did to me. I, I couldn't speak above a whisper. I couldn't eat. I could only walk very, very slowly. It was... Um, All the cliches, heavy heart, my heart weighed 20 pounds. And that wasn't long. The end of your second marriage and the beginning of your third marriage were pretty close in time. Did you see, when you started therapy, was it in part to deal with some of the emotional residue from that second divorce and understanding Um, that breakdown? Okay, since I've written about it, I will say what it is. A month after Ted and I were married, I discovered he was having an affair. And so I left him. And then I decided that I needed to go into therapy. And I went to a couples therapist. And in talking to him about the marriage, I realized that part of the problem was mine. And that maybe I should give Ted a second chance and that the two of us should go into therapy together, which we did. But then I, unlike him, I continued on my own with therapy. So that, that's how I got into it. And, um, and it's how I got out of it eventually. It was a very scary thing. I was 62 years old, and uh, it was a very safe thing being married to Ted. I didn't have to work. He was funny. He was handsome and fun and all those things. But I knew that if I stayed with him, I could never be a fully realized person. And I had to make a decision, and it was really scary. And I felt like Virginia Woolf, only I had two angels in the house, one on one shoulder saying, oh, come on, Fonda, lighten up. (laughs) You know, I mean, (laughs) God, he's got two million acres of the most gorgeous land in the world, and he's funny, and he keeps you laughing. And on the other shoulder, there was an angel with a very soft whisper saying, Jane. You could stay with him and die married, but you'll die not being whole. And so I opted for the whisper. Jane Fonda separated from Ted Turner in 2000 and filed for divorce a year later. She moved back to California and resumed acting, something she'd stopped doing during their marriage. Now she lives with her boyfriend Richard Perry, a music producer, They've been together since 2009. So being alone, I want to ask you about that because the way you talked about your divorce from Ted Turner and your memoirs and what it was to finally be single at that stage in your life, now you're in relationship again. You live with your partner. Tell me about that decision to recommit to somebody. Well, I went seven years celibate. And I thought that was it. But then I met, well, I'd already met Richard, but I reconnected with Richard. And 
I like men who can bring me into a world that's foreign to me, and his is the world of music. And he's something new for me. He's kind. Mm. And he's very, very easy to live with. It's like living with a girlfriend who likes sex. (laughs) 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 And um, he's just real easygoing. And I travel a lot, and I'm alone a lot, and I'm writing a novel, and I hole up in my office, and days go by, and we don't see each other except maybe at night. And also, I'm I'm working more, so I'm away a lot. And um, also, he has Parkinson's, mm-hmm. and I, I sort of feel like I'm supposed to learn to be more empathic and to kind of slow down. So I'm just learning stuff. Does it feel at all uncomfortable to to know that with his Parkinson's diagnosis that you will be in a caretaking role with him? It's very uncomfortable. Yeah, it's not easy. I'm not a caretaker by nature. I have no idea what the future has in store. I'm, I'm trying to do it one day at a time. Mm-hmm. But I get sick all the time, and he never does, and he takes such good care of me and brings me food in bed when I'm sick. I have a shot immune system, and, you know, so the least I can do is to try to give back a little bit of that caretaking. But it's not my nature. My friends tell me I'm wrong, but I know. Do you say that self-critically? I mean, do you think that you're selfish? No, I don't think I'm selfish, but I'm I'm just, um, there's just so much that I want to do in life, including being alone and including going into the mountains and forests and, and writing and acting and I'm, I'm not someone who can give that up for somebody else. Maybe that's selfish. Well, you could certainly, it could also be called self-actualized. <laughs> There's two spins to that. <laughs> Maybe a little bit of both. Yeah. When you reemerged from your celibacy, was sex different? Yeah. So I, th- I think sex, yeah, that's true. Death, sex, and money. Um, <laughs> is se- yeah, I think that when a woman is older, sex is better, partly because she doesn't give a fuzzy rat's ass anymore. You know, she's not out there in the marketplace anymore. She knows her body. She knows what she wants. She's less afraid to ask for it. If it doesn't work out, so what? Do you think you might marry again? Oh, gosh, no. No, 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 no. That very thought of it makes me feel like somebody's got their hands around my neck. Really? Claustrophobia. Just the idea of the institution? Yeah. I, I'm a believer in it. I, I was, the, well, I went to Jane Goodall's 80th birthday last night at the home of friends of mine who've been married for 50 years. And I said, oh, I'm so jealous. You know, that will never be mine to have. Mm-hmm. And people who I know who have been married long like that tell me that it's so, it's so beautiful. It's just so beautiful. And I can... I can kind of smell how beautiful it must be, but I will never know it. No, no, I'd, I can more envision myself disappearing into a monastery than getting married again. <laughs> Jane Fonda. You can hear our entire conversation at deathsexmoney.org. After the break, musicians Jason Isbell and Amanda Shires talk about the first year of their marriage. And Chaz Ebert talks about the end of hers when her husband Roger died. The word widow, that word almost makes you feel alone. I think that's why in the beginning I rejected it. And people would say, they would write Roger's widow. And I would say, no, please write Roger's wife. 
This is Real Love, a Valentine's special from WNYC's Death, Sex, and Money. I'm Anna Sale. This is Real Love, a Valentine special from WNYC's Death, Sex, and Money. I'm Anna Sale. As soon as Death, Sex, and Money launched in 2014, I started getting emails that asked for one thing, an episode about infidelity. People had a lot of questions about cheating and a lot of stories. Twelve years ago, I cheated on my boyfriend of ten years. I don't want to be the person who causes that pain. Um, to anybody. I think he wanted to be with me, but his kids were holding him back. I found out later that he had gotten a friend of his pregnant. It is the reason we broke up, but I don't think he ever found out about it. If you would have asked me, if anybody would have asked me beforehand, you know, how would you react if you found out your partner had had an affair? I would have probably said, you know, I will, I will walk. It's also a, a surprise of what I had in me. The shock and the emergency of the situation has put me closer to myself. Musician Jason Isbell described himself as a philanderer, in a past life at least. His success in music came young. By his early 20s, he was touring with the drive-by truckers. He got married and divorced. When he started dating musician Amanda Shires, he was also drinking a lot. That changed while they were together. When we spoke in 2014, they'd been married for about a year, and Jason had been sober for about two. They're still making music separately and together. This is from Jason's 2013 album, Southeastern. I've grown tired of traveling alone. Tired of traveling How would you describe this first year of marriage that you've had together? I think we did a great job. We got along for, for a large part of it. And, uh, you know, we don't have the same arguments at the end of the first year that we had at the beginning of the first year. And I think that's important. I think for anything to be successful, your problems have to become different problems over time. What did you argue about when you first married that now you're sort of over? Trust. It was hard for her to trust me, you know, that I was actually going to stick around and, and wasn't going to uh, make a fool of her. I was I was not an easy person to trust because I hadn't been sober very long. And, you know, I felt like I hadn't been a grown up very long at that point. But I was determined. Would you put it the same way? I would say, yeah, trust too, because, um, you know, all this technology and stuff, it's easy to develop a new relationship if you wanted to with somebody else. But we got over that. Yeah, it was scary for me. I'm probably more than a little bit neurotic about certain personal things. And and one of them is the fact that it is really so easy. I mean, years ago, if somebody called, there was one phone in the house, you know, and there was all these songs about nobody calling and and hanging up as soon as, you know, the wife asks who it is. And uh, there aren't those songs anymore because you can get in touch with that nobody so quickly and so easily. And that did terrify me. And, you know, also it was something probably that I had uh, superimposed. What's the word? for uh, your own concern that you put on some projecting. projecting. Yeah, I was probably doing that in a way, too, because I had been uh, such a dog for so long. I probably just sort of expected everybody would be that way, but, but that's not the case. Ten years ago I might have seen you dancing in a different light And offered up my help in different ways But those were different days projecting, Amanda broke in to say. I love that moment because it shows how they work as a couple. Jason talks a lot more than Amanda does, but when she breaks in, it's really telling. You get the sense that she's the one that's drawn a lot of the lines in their relationship. My daddy told me, I believe he told me true That the right things always are to sing to do 
What prompted rehab? He needed help, and he told me one night after we were drinking, you know, he wanted to quit drinking. I was like, all right. And he was, okay, he wasn't the person that could just stop drinking. You know, I remembered him trying a couple days in a row or a day in a row, trying not to drink after he woke up, you know. But there's physical signs, you know, like shaking and all the things like that. And um, a few nights later, he said the same thing, and he was very upset and was like, I can't do it by myself. And I was like, well, all right, you don't get to just say this over and over, you know, this is what you're going to do. And so I texted a couple of his friends, and in the night while I was looking up, you know, the rehab things and numbers, and then I emailed his manager about it to help sort of facilitate going to rehab. The last night before, because I think he knew he was going to go to rehab, he was wanted to do every drug and drink everything and all the moonshine and all the late night life. It was crazy. It started out like a cool night, you know, and ended up being the worst night ever, 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 ever. At that point, I was not having any more of anything to do with him because I was so mad the next morning. It's got me thinking now, what if I really could be bulletproof? During that period, was it your impression that your relationship was in jeopardy? I knew it was in jeopardy, but I never, uh, you know, I'd I'd been after her for a long time, a long time. I never allowed failure to be an option, really. I'm competitive in, in a lot of things, too many things, really. And in that particular area, I just had set in my mind, this is going to work out. Whatever I have to do, whatever I have to say, this is going to work out. So as nervous as I was and as scared as I was that she might not be there when I got out, I still was looking for a way to make it work out and, and, you know, focusing a lot of energy on that. And and some part of me thought it would be all right, but, you know, I I didn't know for sure. Early on, I didn't understand his drinking problem. You know, early on, it's like, I'm good at going out and having a good time partying, you know, getting drunk occasionally or whatever. But after a while, I realized that it was... A real problem and then for my life you know I didn't want to invest in somebody that you know might not be around for that and you know or how sad it would be to watch somebody with so much talent just throw it all away the resulting scar Amanda, tell me about the year. You said something that's happened over the last year is you've built trust. Mm-hmm. How do you build trust when when your husband is a touring musician? Because you know what comes with that in oh, a lot yeah. of cases. Yeah. Oh, I do. I've seen it myself and other people and everything. But I think in, in my mind, you know, I sometimes just ask him or say, you know, have you been talking to any women? Because you're on your <laughs> phone a lot today. And... um. Then some days I'm like, whatever he does, I have no control over his actions. And whatever he does or does not do, it's not a reflection on me, you know. It's the choices he makes. Hopefully we're in a place where we communicate well enough to know when we're having problems or not. That way somebody doesn't go, you know, looking for something that we're not getting from somebody else because that's usually yeah, what it is. Yeah, that's, you know? that's a trick, communicating like that, saying you can, it. Yeah, you can't steal somebody from somebody. They go. It's their choice. Everybody makes a choice. You know when you cross the line. I don't know. I I just trust them. We don't ignore it, you mm-hmm. know, the fact that there are other people mm-hmm. vying for our attention and that, that, you know, when you're on the road, mm-hmm. it makes it easier to, to think you can get away with stuff like that. We discuss it, you yeah. know. If somebody's worried, we talk about it. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, usually if you name something, it becomes a lot less uh, difficult to defeat. Right. And so when you get asked, Jason, have you been talking to women, do you feel defensive or do you feel... Like, oh, we need, we probably are due for a visit? Usually, no, I don't feel defensive because it's regular. It's a regular <laughs> thing. I mean, it's almost every day that we say that. Have you been talking to anybody today? You got new boyfriends? You know? And yeah. uh, it's, it's. You got any new boyfriends? Yeah. Anybody interesting you? Yeah. And you could say, yeah, yeah, I've been talking to this person about whatever, but, you know, you shouldn't, shouldn't 
you you should be able to have friends, you know, but that you Yeah, that's another thing too because it's 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 you know, it's hard for me to not be possessive and I don't want to be possessive, you know. The family I come from kind of old school about things, you know. I I don't want it to be uneven. I don't want to be, you know, the man from Alabama who's in charge of his wife, you know, from Texas. I, I don't want it to be that way. I want it to be not possessive at all, you know. I, I think if you really trust somebody, they should be able to have whatever friends they want to have. But I think I think the trick is just, you know, talk about it. If something happens, if something's going to happen, it's going to happen, you yeah. know. You can choose to trust somebody or not. If you think you found somebody trustworthy, there's a better chance that you're not going to get stomped on. But at the end of the day, you have to understand that, yes, somewhere down the line, you might get your heart broken, you know. Mm-hmm. If you're grown up, it won't kill you. Um, Sometimes it helps me to say say it right out or say it in my brains or I'll feel so bad for you if you f*** up. She does say that. I say that a lot. I feel so she bad for you if you f*** so up. Bad I'll say you. it like three times to myself, yeah. you know, kind of like a helps a lot. Yeah, that says a lot about her right there because I believe it. I know it's a taunt, but I believe she would indeed. If she had to kick me out, she would feel bad for me. <laughs> she would feel pity, which she is probably a, not a good thing. It's to, not what you, you want, you know. no. It's not what you want, but she would. She would she would really feel bad for me, not for having to kick me out, just for my general situation. <laughs> so girl, hang your dress up to dry. We ain't leaving this room. Percy Priest breaks open wide and river runs. Jason Isbolt and Amanda Shires. They'll celebrate their third wedding anniversary this spring, and they had a baby girl last September. We loved holding hands. We, I don't even think we were aware of it, but we just like sitting next to each other and holding hands. I want to end with Chaz Ebert. We talked about her husband, film critic Roger Ebert, who died in 2013 from cancer. Roger was writing up until the very end, but for the last seven years of his life, after his lower jaw was removed, he was unable to eat, drink, or speak normally. A new documentary called Life Itself captures this period in Roger's life. It shows how his wife, Chaz, became his caregiver and communicator. At some point, he asked me to be his voice. So we would do some things on the computer, and then he would say, but I want you to say this. It's important for you to say this part. You know, and so we, when he was very sick, it felt like we became one person. There, I didn't feel the boundaries that you fill with two people And I know those boundaries so well because when he got better and he got stronger, those boundaries were resurrected and I became my own person again and he became his own person. But the period where we became one was a very interesting period when I think back on it because I didn't realize that that's what was happening. I don't even know how to explain it, but I actually did feel him in my soul when we became one person what changed between you two when he when he was no longer able to talk to you with his voice almost nothing because roger and i developed almost a, a mental telepathy mm-hmm. we were so in tune with each other that we actually could speak to each other without words or without even being in the same room. Like a deep ability to understand what he was prompting, like he want, what he wanted to communicate or even... I don't know. To me, I actually heard his voice in my head. Really? Yeah. And I know that happened sometimes uh, when he was in the hospital. I would wake up in the middle of the night and I would call the hospital and I would say, oh my God, he is so cold. Will you please go in and put the warming blanket on him? And the nurse would come back and say, how do you know? Did he call you? And they would say, well, he couldn't call you. He can't speak. And I said, I don't know. But he just told me he was cold. Hmm. See, I, 
You know, I have to tell you, I knew you weren't going to ask me just the standard questions. I just knew it. And I had a little trepidation because I know I'm probably going to say things here that I probably shouldn't say. But Well, uh, let's, let's actually pause and talk about that a bit because I, in thinking about our conversation, I was wondering where those boundaries are for you. Because no, the, you know what I'm going to tell you, and there are there are none, and that's why I was uh, a little. No, you can just ask me anything, and and if something gets too hard or too, uh, I'll, I'll I'll tell you. Okay. All right. Yeah. When was the last time you you heard his voice in your in your head? Mm. Very recently. He still talks to me. Yeah, he does. You feel his presence. And you hear it. I mean, you hear it. Yeah, I do. You know, Anna, I have to, and I say this, I don't know why Roger and I were brought together. I do feel that there's something, it almost feels like a destiny to it because there are some parts of our getting together that didn't make sense. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and our bond was so strong that I that I wondered about it. I mean, it, and now the fact that he still is in touch with me and communicates with me, uh, that's also, I mean, it's a wondrous thing. Does that make you feel less sad? It does. It's very comforting because he lets me know that he is okay. He's more than okay. He is blissful because when he was nearing death and in, in the documentary it shows that he he died when he was ready to go and and you were yes. quite ready for him to go that's correct and do you feel like that it's been reassuring to know that he was ready it is so reassuring it just makes me smile to know that he is this i don't know what he is. I don't know what form we're in, but I know that it's something that's comforting and it feels so natural and so normal. And I know that there are a lot of things that we um, shut down talking about in our society because we can't, things that we can't prove. Uh, But now I firmly, firmly believe in an afterlife. Did you believe in an afterlife before he passed? I don't know. I don't know what I thought happened after death. I haven't had this experience. I've, you know, I've lost several family members, my mother, my father, two brothers and two sisters. And the rest, I haven't had an experience like this, like I'm having with Roger, where he kind of reports back. (laughs) So I don't know what I thought about the afterlife. I have zero fear of death now, zero. What I do talk about with my children and grandchildren is living. We don't talk about death so much as living and telling them to do, you know, find their passion in life and live it. Because time, you know, we don't know how much time is promised to us. That's Chaz Ebert talking about her husband, Roger. Roger also wrote about a special connection he felt with Chaz. She's the great fact of my life, he said in his memoir. Her love was like a wind forcing me back from the grave. Does that sound too dramatic? You were not there. That's real love. It's the most beautiful thing in the world, something we all need. But learning how it actually works, that happens one-on-one through trial and error in the privacy of our own relationships and individual choices. Still, I agree with musicians Jason Isbell and Amanda Shires. It's sure nice to swap stories. I think we start writing in the first place to communicate with people and say, Mm -hmm. I feel this way, do you feel this way? You Mm -hmm. know, that's the only question, really. That's the only story is... Will you listen to me and feel the same way that I do for a minute? And, yeah, if it causes people to come 
to us or even to just think in the back of their mind, you know, that, that there's some kind of connection. And it's worth telling your secrets. It is. Amen. Death, Sex, and Money is a production of WNYC Studios. The team includes Katie Bishop, Chester Jesus Soria, Emily Botin, and Andrew Dunn. Special thanks to Bill Moss for his help on this episode. The Reverend John Delore and Steve Lewis wrote our theme music. I'm on Twitter, at Anna Sale. The show is at Death, Sex, Money. You can find Death, Sex, and Money on iTunes, and all of our episodes are on our website at deathsexmoney.org. Thanks to PRX, the Public Radio Exchange, Jim Briggs, John Ryan, and Jonathan Menhevar and This American Life, which first aired a version of the story about Senator Alan Simpson and My Love Life. And here's one final bit of advice from Senator Simpson. Al wanted me to know that keeping a relationship going is often about when not to say things. He told me he's gotten really good at that. When I was at their house in Cody, it smelled like smoke because Anne had left a pot on the stove before they'd gone out the night before. Al said when he opened the door and saw the smoke, he didn't say a thing. I just started opening the windows. Because I already said, oh, for God's sakes, I forgot to turn that down. There are times that there's no need to say no, anything. No need to say a word. Did cough a little, but then I'm ahead. She might she might say something the next time, whereas I didn't this time. And she might say, well, for God's sake, Al, I told... I'll say, oh, wait a minute, the night that pot of crap nearly blew up our house, I didn't say anything. Remember? I'm back. I won. See, you see, there's I no progress, wait. really. I hope it comes up soon. No progress at all. I'm Anna Sale, and this is Death, Sex, and Money from WNYC. I want to thank you for listening and for all your support as we at Death, Sex, and Money have made our move to Slate. Your stories, voice memos, and emails have meant so much to the team. As part of this transition, there's a new way to support our show financially at Slate, our new home. And you'll get something special in return. Subscribe to Slate Plus, and you'll not only support our work on death, sex, and money, you'll get access to new benefits, including listening to us and all of the other great shows Slate makes, like Slow Burn and Dakota Ring, without any ads or sponsor breaks. To subscribe, just click Try Free at the top of the Death, Sex, and Money show page on Apple Podcasts, or visit slate.com slash DSM Plus to get access wherever you listen. Thanks.